0: Have you ever felt like someone had it out for you? Our family recently had the experience of feeling like a whole town had it out for us. This past September, we vacationed up in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And uh, I will tell you, it is a beautiful part of the country. But while we were there, we learned that the people of Lake Geneva... Do not like visitors. In a gift shop there in Lake Geneva, you can buy a shirt that says, in all caps, Locals Only, Lake Geneva. As we entered a store, Alyssa spotted a doormat that read, I forgot to write welcome because I didn't really mean it. This is a town that did not welcome outsiders. But we felt the most unwelcome when we ate breakfast one morning at a local diner. Hudson, uh, 16 months old at the time, was having a rough morning. Uh, He was cranky and hungry, hangry, if you will. And he would yell out or cry, and, and, and we did our best to deal with him and respond how we could, but he just continued to have these outbursts every so often. And at one point, he even knocked a glass plate off the table and it shattered on the ground. And so we're just preoccupied with trying to deal with him and pretty much giving all of our focus on him. But but even in the midst of that, we started to notice that every time Hudson would make a loud sound, these two older women at the table across the room would say something. At first, we thought it was just a coincidence, but then we started to notice that not only were they reacting every time Hudson did something, they wanted us to hear them react every single time Hudson cried out. He would cry, and you'd just hear, or seriously, or something to that effect. And toward the end of our meal, Alyssa was going to take Hudson to the van to change his diaper, and right as she walked by these two ladies, they say, Finally, they're leaving. But then Alyssa realized she had left the keys at the table, so she had to come back the other way and pass them again. And as she did, they said, oh, great, they're back. <laughs> when, the fi- when the time finally came for us to leave, the, uh, the kids asked if they could have a quarter to get some candy out of the gumball machine. And from across the room, I hear, oh, yeah, that's what those kids need, more sugar. More sugar. And so our whole experience in this town left us feeling like the whole place had it out for us. Well, in a much more serious way, we've seen in Esther how Haman had it out for the Jews, especially Mordecai. We saw last week how Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. So As a response, Haman manipulated the king of the Persian Empire to annihilate Mordecai's entire people group, the Jews, 11 months from this time. In God's providence, Mordecai's cousin and adopted daughter, Esther, was the queen. And so we saw last week how he begged her to go to the king and advocate for the Jews. Esther reluctantly agreed to this plan, and she instructed Mordecai and all the Jews there in the capital city to fast for her for three days, and then she would go to the king. So at the point that we're picking up this story, there's quite a contrast between the position that Haman is in and the position that Mordecai is in. Haman is second in command of the Persian Empire, He had, at this point, successfully talked the king into letting him wipe out the Jews. He clearly had the upper hand. On the other hand, you have Mordecai, who was in a desperate situation. In just a matter of months, he and his family and his entire people group were going to be killed. He had been faithful to the king, but his faithfulness had been overlooked And his only hope was in Queen Esther approaching the king, and it was quite possible that she could be killed just for trying to talk to the king. Humanly speaking, it seemed that Haman was just going to keep winning, and it seemed like Mordecai was just going to keep losing. But what we're going to see in our story today is that God is in the business of reversing expectations. I've titled this sermon, God in the Reversal. Because the the wide gate and the easy path may look like it leads to life. The narrow gate and hard path may look like it leads to death. But our God is a God of reversal. The main thing that you're going to see in our story today is this. God humbles the proud, but exalts the humble. The God of reversal humbles the proud but exalts the humble. Let's get into our text. Let's read Esther 5, verses 1 through 8. Follow along with me as I read. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, "'Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked.' So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, "'What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled.' Then Esther answered, "'My wish and my, my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request,' Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Esther finally went into the king as she said she would. She went in uninvited, and if the king had not wanted to see her, he could have had her put to death. But she found favor or grace in his sight, so he allowed her to approach. And the king offered her anything that she wanted. So she asked the king and Haman to come to a feast that she had prepared. And they came to her feast. And again, the king offered her anything that she wanted. But again, she asked them to come back for another feast the next day. And what we see in this is, like Haman, Esther knew how to butter up the king. She didn't just come right out with her request. She showed him a good time for a couple of days first. Well, let's continue reading Esther 5, verses 9 through 14. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife. Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So in between these two feasts, Haman goes home. He gathers all of his friends together. He gathers his wife, Zeresh, and he reminds them about how rich he is and all of his accolades and all of his accomplishments, all these great things because, you know, Haman knew how to throw a party. Um, Everybody loves being invited by someone to talk about how great they are. He said, though, all of that is worth nothing to me if Mordecai keeps refusing to bow down. Now, Haman had already made a plan to have Mordecai killed. He had made a plan to have his whole people group annihilated in 11 months, but Haman just couldn't wait that long to kill Mordecai. So Zeresh and his friends had an idea. They say, hey, listen, before you go to the feast tomorrow, have a 75-foot-tall gallows made and ask the king to hang that lawbreaker on it. Haman loved the idea, so he immediately had the gallows made. And So notice, here's the schedule for the next day. Esther planned a feast at which she would ask the king to spare the lives of the Jewish people. But before the feast, Haman would ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on the gallows he built. Unbeknownst to Esther. So both Esther and Haman had two very different plans and two very different requests that they were going to make to the king the next day. But even though both Esther and Haman were banking on what would occur the next day, the turning point of this whole story would actually come the night before. Let's read Esther 6, 1 through 5. On that night, The king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So it just so happened... That the night before Haman and Esther were both planning to talk to the king, the king had trouble sleeping. What a coincidence. So the king did what all kings do he asked for a bedtime story. He had a servant read to him from the book of memorable deeds. And he heard this story that had been recorded about how uh, five years earlier, Mordecai had thwarted an assassination attempt on the king. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And so the king hears the story, he says, how did we honor Mordecai for this? But nothing had been done. And so the king wanted to correct this immediately. And so he he quickly, you know, who's here? Who can advise me on what I can do to honor Mordecai? And coincidentally, Haman had just arrived at the palace to talk about having Mordecai hanged. The the king didn't know that. He just knew Haman was there. So he said, hey, Haman, come on in here. Let's read verses 6 through 9. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman, not knowing anything about the king's sleepless night or his intentions, heard the king ask, What should be done for someone that the king wants to honor? So Haman, of course, assumed the king wanted to honor him. I mean, after all, this is the man whom the king promoted to be the second in command of the whole Persian Empire. He exalted him over all of his other servants. This is the one the king commanded all the other servants to bow down to every time he walked by. Who else but Haman would receive the kind of honor that the king wanted to give? And so Haman whipped out his wish list of all the ways he wanted the king to honor him. He told him about all the royal perks and all the pomp that he wanted for himself. Now look at the king's response in verses 10 and 11. The king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. (laughs) In this twist of divine irony, when Haman wanted to hang Mordecai, the king had Haman honor Mordecai. Haman wanted Mordecai up on the gallows, but instead he was up on a horse, and Haman had to lead him around the city square, telling everyone how great Mordecai the Jew was. The glory that Haman wanted for himself, he had to give to Mordecai. Well, let's see Haman's response in verses 12 through 14. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning And with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh. And all his friends. Everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men. And his wife Zeresh said to him. If Mordecai. Before whom you have begun to fall. Is of the Jewish people. You will not overcome him. But will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him. The king's eunuchs arrived. And hurried to bring Haman. To the feast that Esther had prepared. So Haman was distraught over this dramatic reversal that had occurred. And as he shared this with Zeresh and his friends, they could see where this was going. They saw the trend. Mordecai was on his way up, and Haman was beginning to fall before him. So they said, if this Mordecai that the king made you honor is part of the Jewish people you plan to annihilate, this is not going to end well for you. And then immediately it was time to go to Esther's second feast. See what happens, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold. I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So here the day finally came for Esther to advocate for her people. The king again offered, just as he had done twice already, to give Esther anything she wanted. And he gave her the chance, and she asked for her life. She asked for the life of her people. She explained to him that, The people of the queen, the people of his queen, were about to be annihilated. But but notice, she's not asking for a favor. Just like Haman had done previously, she appealed to the king's self-interest. She said, if we were going to be sold as slaves, I wouldn't have said anything. I mean, that would have been profitable for the king. You would have gotten something out of it. But as it is, the king is just going to lose a lot of people, and get nothing in return. She even says, our affliction, meaning the annihilation of the Jewish people, our affliction isn't as important as the loss to the king. Because again, what we have in the king in the story is not a redemption story. The king is not all of a sudden a softy. He is still seeking his own self-interest, and that's what God uses to save the Jewish people. So when the king demanded to know who was responsible for this, she pointed to Haman, and Haman was terrified. Let's see what happens next. Esther 7, verses 7 through 10. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs and attendants on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So the king storms out of the room, furious, and immediately Haman throws himself on the couch where Esther is sitting, and he's begging the queen for his life. But that's not what it looked like when the king came back in. What he saw was Haman falling on this couch, and he assumed Haman is going to attack his wife right in front of him in his own palace. And so immediately, Haman's taken away and hanged on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Behold, the god of reversal. Mordecai, who was about to be killed, was instead given royal honor. And Haman, who thought he had the upper hand, was instead hanged and humiliated. The Jew in danger was exalted and the enemy of the Jews was executed. This is divine reversal. Our God is a God who often reverses circumstances. Just when it looks like things are going to go one way, he reverses expectations. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, but God exalted him to be the second in command of all Egypt, and his brothers bowed down to him. Saul was the king like the nations who stood head and shoulders above the rest, yet he was rejected and the overlooked shepherd boy, David, was exalted to the throne. God often reverses circumstances and of course the greatest reversal of all happened at Calvary. There Jesus Christ was arrested, beaten, crucified, given a criminal's execution and buried. But in a dramatic divine reversal, he rose from the dead and was exalted to the right hand of the throne of God as king of kings and lord of lords. And furthermore, at the cross, though Jesus was perfectly righteous and worthy of reward, and we were miserable sinners and worthy of death, in the great reversal of God's grace, our sin was placed on Jesus and he hung from the cross that we were supposed to hang from. And God now takes the righteousness of Jesus and he gives it to sinners like you and me. Though we deserve the punishment of death, we can receive the reward and the honor that Jesus earned because our God is a God of reversal. Our God humbles the proud, but he exalts the humble. Turn with me to Luke 18. going to be in verses 9 through 14. What I want us to see is that those who receive the reward of the reversal of the cross are those who humble themselves before God. Luke eighteen nine through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house, justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Hear that again. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want us to consider two points of application as we think about Esther 5 through 7. First of all, God humbles the proud. God humbles the proud. God is not impressed with human greatness. He's not impressed by the riches or accolades of Haman. He's not impressed with the fasting and tithing of the Pharisee, and he's not impressed with you or me either. Yet often we find our sense of worth in our accomplishments. Maybe you find your worth in what you have. If there's plenty of money, you feel accomplished you're worthy if the money's lacking, you're anxious. Maybe you find your worth in the approval of others. It could be your reputation, it could be promotions or accolades, positions. Maybe you find your worth in what you've done. The amount of good you've done, the amount of good you've contributed to society. Your Sunday school attendance. Your theological knowledge. If you're finding your worth in your accomplishments, you are setting yourself up to be humbled. You may be high up on the ladder today, but Jesus says you're on a path that is trending downward. In fact, you're on a path that God opposes. 1 Peter 5, 5-7 through seven says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. If you find yourself trusting in yourself and trusting in your accomplishments, what you've done, what people say about you, what you have, let me invite you today to humble yourself before God. Stop trying to impress God. Stop trying to impress others. Rely on God's grace through faith in Jesus and say with the humble tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God humbles the proud. And second point, God exalts the humble. God is not looking for the impressive or the accomplished. God is looking for those who know how desperate their situation is. Mordecai was in a desperate situation. He and his people were going to be wiped out, and he knew how desperate that situation was. Before Esther went to the king, Mordecai, Esther, and all the Jews there in the capital city fasted for three days. They were desperately seeking God's mercy. In Isaiah 66, 2, God says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God is looking for those who know they have no worth in and of themselves. God is looking not for those who boast about their religion, but those who are broken over their sins. God is looking for those who are desperately seeking his mercy. And we serve a God who is rich in mercy. What strikes me about this passage is that even as I describe Mordecai as humble, and certainly there is humility in this fasting and seeking God's mercy for three days, this passage really doesn't actually say that much about Mordecai's character, Because the thing about mercy is, you don't deserve it. You don't get it because of how good you are at being humble. You don't earn God's favor because he's impressed. Oh my, have you ever seen such humility? We should reward that with mercy. That's the opposite of mercy. Mercy is God's favor for those who are in a desperate situation and don't deserve his favor. 1 Peter 5.5 does not say that God gives the humble what they earned. It says that God gives grace to the humble. Just like Esther did not deserve to come into the king's presence, she deserved if he decided for her to be killed, but she found grace in his sight, favor in his sight. God gives undeserved favor, grace to the humble. The reason Mordecai was exalted was not because of how successfully humble he was. He was exalted because his merciful God kept his word. He kept promises like Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He kept promises like Exodus thirty three nineteen I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He kept promises like Isaiah 43, 1 through 3, And this is the God who will give you mercy, too, if you're in Christ. So fix your eyes, not on yourself, not on your accomplishments, not even on your humility. Instead, fix your eyes on the merciful God. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. When you're tempted toward anxiety, remember our God is merciful and he cares. If you question if anyone loves you, remember our God is merciful and he cares. In the stresses of ordinary life, remember that our God is merciful and he cares. In the midst of failure and self-doubt, remember our God is merciful and he cares. Humble yourself before our merciful God. Cast all your cares on him. God exalts the humble. after a week in Lake Geneva, we returned to Texas, we landed in DFW, and we got on the road toward Stephenville, and when we were about to Weatherford, we realized it was getting kind of late, we hadn't eaten supper, and we didn't have any food at home because we had been gone all week, so we decided to stop into the Cracker Barrel there in Weatherford. We sit down to eat, and guess who's hangry again? Hudson again he cries and he yells yet again he shatters a glass plate on the floor and as you can imagine again he was turning heads we were mortified and we thought here we go again just then our waitress came up to our table And we were ready to apologize profusely for the mess and the disturbance. But she said to us, hey, I just want to let you know, somebody has decided to pay for your meal. And after the last experience we had had, we we couldn't believe it. Uh, Alyssa was so touched, she just started bawling. (laughs) Um, It looked like things were going one way. And after our previous experience, we knew what we deserved, but in an act of divine reversal, we received mercy. Our God is a God of reversal. He is a God of mercy. Remember that God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. And humble yourself under his mighty and merciful hand. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you that so often when things look like they are going one way, you surprise us with your mercy. And show us favor that we do not deserve. I thank you for the reversal of the cross most of all. Where Jesus was hanged. And the place where we should have been hanged. I thank you for the great exchange of his righteousness for our sin. And I pray that we would remember that your astounding grace, and that we would therefore humble ourselves under you, casting all our cares on you, because we know that you are a God who is merciful, a God who cares for us. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.